Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. The very best of last week's rugby coaching webinars and podcasts, reviewed by host Phil Flewellyn and his special guests. Howdy and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. It's excellent to have you with us as we explore the last week's rugby and coaching content. I'm delighted to say this week I've tied down three coaching guns. Gents, if you'd like to introduce yourselves, where you are from and what is your current role. Thanks. Uh, nice to record a gun, Phil. Thank you very much. My name's Alan Hubbleday, or most people know me as Hubs. I am the England Rugby Player Pathway Officer for the South West. Cool. Um, I'm Dan Cox uh, from Bristol. You can probably pick up by the accent. Uh, currently lecturing at SGS College. Um, recently joined Old Reds as well and formerly Bristol Bears. Yeah, hi everyone. Uh, Stuart Dixon, also known as Dicko. I am the Academy Coach Development Officer at the Yorkshire Rugby Academy. Uh, been doing that role for three years now. Um, Enjoy that, coach the under 15, 16s PDG, and every now and again the under 18s academy team. Former colleague of Philip and uh, Alan. Gents, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure to have you all on board. I'm not sure if I told you uh, off there actually, but um, did I mention that my wife has left me because of my obsession with uh, cowboy jokes? It's all right though, because the town ain't big enough for the both of us. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer pirate jokes. <laughs> yeah, sure. oh, wow. got loads of them as well but we're, oh, yeah. we're sticking with the cowboy theme it's all good, all good. <laughs> uh format i'll run through the format briefly and then we'll get into things so we'll be discussing and reviewing some of the cpds that have taken place over the last week uh the guests will give you a brief review of their learnings uh, with a key piece of content they've engaged with and then we'll delve into some questions how, about how they might apply that in their own environment. At the end we'll have a quick rundown of what the guys are looking forward to in the coming week. Link to all the content we discuss can be found in the blurb accompanying the podcast so please do have a look. Right we'll jump straight into it Dan we are coming to you first so what, uh, what caught your eye this week? Cool so I've mixed it up a little bit and gone across the pond uh, over to the States and I've listened to, I'm not sure the, the name of the podcast, but it's with Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll. Uh, just a quick rundown of who they are. So Steve Kerr is the current coach of the Golden State Warriors. He's just come off the back of uh, three NBAs with them. Uh, Pete Carroll is Seattle Seahawks, um, mentored by Bill Walsh, 40 years of coaching experience and pretty much won it all. What I really, really liked about this when I started listening to them, was Steve Kerr, obviously ex-professional, Chicago Bulls player, went into media and has only really jumped into sports coaching six years ago. Pete Carroll, 40 years of experience, has been kind of through his um, internship. He's been an assistant coach. He, he's been everywhere. He's been through the colleges. He, he's now landed at Seattle Seahawks. What was very much the same, though, which intrigued me, was actually what they spoke about was fundamentally the same. So the gist of the podcast really is they, they talk about how they met each other. They talk about coming in and observe. Uh, Steve Kerr was invited into Seattle to observe uh, six years ago. Uh, Steve had lots of ideas around offense and defense and X's and O's and tactics. Um, after seeing it, Pete Carroll sat down and said, look, that's brilliant. Tactics, amazing. Technique, amazing. But how are you going to coach? And it really, it threw Steve. It was a, it was a curveball question. And he said, look, you know, I'm not trying to throw you here, but that's all great. But how are you going to coach? What's your values? How are you going to educate the players? How are you going to get them to buy into your vision? He went away for three months and then a year later won an NBA title. So he was obviously pretty successful in, in what he decided to do. But fundamentally, they kind of, I suppose it's a bit of a buzzword at the moment, the, the culture, the DNA, the vision, the philosophy, whatever we want to call it. But he kind of centred it around his energy, his value, his values as a person. And actually, he helped the players to buy into that with kind of 
a lot of the stuff he was doing at the time. But they also then go on to speak about actually how much we, we kind of speak about culture at the moment and we put it out there and we all have the meetings at the start of the year. What do you want from the year? What is it that you're going to achieve? What's our values? What's our culture? What's our aims? But it's more about how do we get there? I think, and how do we, how do we make sure that, that actually becomes our culture? So he was really big on, on tiny incremental steps every day. So he lived it, he breathed it. He kind of made sure that they all, they all were brought in in the, same, in the same respect as well. And that was very much the same as what they were doing at the Seahawks. And it all kind of stemmed around really enjoying what they were doing, being really intentional in their training. Um, the biggest thing that, that he, both of them kind of spoke about in a different way was uh, one of them called it coaching of love. The other called it uh, parenting. And he said, actually, the biggest thing for me that underpins my philosophy is I wouldn't want my kids to be to not able to go into the world and be good decision makers, good problem solvers. So why would I want my players to, to not be able to do that as well? So I thought that was really fascinating. Um, kind of a, the summary, I suppose, is that um, to pick up on a quote I heard the other day, I think it was on the, another podcast. Can I name other podcasts? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was on the, it was on the Magic Academy podcast. Um, but not Kirk, that one. No, you not can't that one. no. Uh, So Kirk from Google said, um, behaviour eats processed for breakfast. And it's something I didn't really take a lot in at the time. I didn't think about it until I heard the, the Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll podcast as well. And I thought, actually, that links really well. Um, they said that their how and their why actually beats their what all the time. And every season their what might change, but their how and their why doesn't. Okay, or they might refresh things, but actually their why and their how it is based on kind of their personality, their energy, and their core values of people, which I thought was a nice little change actually this week because there's quite a lot out there at the moment This kind of looking at, I suppose, a lot of webinar through professional lens. And actually I thought that this is some really key stuff that can be applied across my context in wherever I am. Nice. What, what would that, my first question, what would that actually look like for you on a day-to-day or a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday basis, Dan? I, I, think it's, I think it's the little things, not so much like the big things. I don't think it's going in and make, going in, you know, whenever we start back in pre-season and completely going, I've had this idea now, I've got something else and changing it. But I think actually if we're saying that, that our culture is, is centred around enjoyment, how am I really intentional around that in my training? How am I making sure that Actually, we're having lots of enjoyment. Um, if we're saying, you know, we're, we're going to be really execution focused, how am I, how am I implementing that in everything we do? Um, so I, I think it's just been a little bit more intentional around my behaviours and actually in reinforcing, um, picking up on some stuff, maybe reminding, refreshing. Yeah, and I think like they spoke about steering and guiding rather than dragging because dragging takes more energy. So actually, can we steer and guide our, our athletes rather than putting them along on the journey? I think for me, that, that's, that's probably quite a big one going into a new club. Is there a chance to maybe get them to buy in with me rather than have to push them in that direction? I really like that. I wonder whether that's about finding the early adopters and the more people you can take with you early, the, the, the harder that becomes for everyone else to resist the momentum then, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, I think so. And I think, like, I suppose we're, well, I speak from my, in my own experience only really, but I've definitely been guilty in the past of saying, these are, these are the values that we need to adopt. And actually, they're, they're just my values. Or, or values that I picked up from, from a book or, or legacy or something like that. Um, but I, I suppose it's that joint enterprise. And actually, they're, they're going to buy into it if it's something they believe in. They're probably also going to buy into it if it's something that you, you revisit and refresh and live. Coxie, I really like that, mate. Are there any examples of those incremental changes that you talked about? And... Uh, and or bringing people with them, not dragging it, because I, I'm really interested in that. Yeah, so I think um, Peter Carroll spoke about actually when he first went to the, when he first went to, it wasn't the Seahawks, it was his, the college he was at before, the USC, um, and he was like sixth or seventh choice actually to be selected as coach. So he had, they had no pressure at all, which was really nice to sort of a professional coach saying, I had no pressure, there was loads of risk in our environment. We set, out, we set out this kind of, this is going to be our culture. And 
immediately there was some people that kind of that weren't brought in and actually he had to he had to show some he had to show them some of the successes early on so like they were they were arguing around they didn't think things would work they didn't think running a certain offense would work yeah they wanted to be more tactical they wanted to be more more rigid and then he started to show them successes of that and i think their analysis sessions were actually around what that looks like that looks like you making decisions that looks like you're having fun that looks like you're being intentional and creative so actually highlighting the practice and living it every day sort of embedded them in that journey i think as well so there's a big bit of analysis done there and trying to get away from their biases because it sounds like they had a real implicit bias around actually no that won't work yeah and i think like he's gone in he's, he's obviously dealt with college players first but Steve Kerr went into Golden, the Golden State Warriors. They already had a Steph Curry. They already had a Kevin Durant or, or whatever. So they had good players there. They hadn't won anything for a long time before he went there. So, so something he's done is made them, something he's done is, is directly made them sort of enjoy themselves, play more, play free, score a lot of points. Yeah, sounds good. I think I saw a video recently on, um, on Kerr where he actually delegated out a huddle yeah. To one of his players. Yeah. It's just come out on Twitter today, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Which is nice. In a professional environment, that's really rare, isn't it? Yeah. Really rare. I think what was, what was also quite cool, I think, was that there had been a significant other in their, in their journey. Um, so uh, Pete Carroll was quite a young coach, but was lucky enough to keep working with uh, Bill Walsh. But actually, if you look at Steve Curry, he... He didn't have much coaching experience, but he'd come out of the Chicago Bulls dynasty, if you like. So he'd had some, some incredible experiences there. I think mean, actually finding, finding those people with that knowledge is quite important. Yeah. Yeah. I'd uh, watched uh, Space Jam for the first time with the kids the other day. They enjoyed that. Incredible. Best film ever. Awesome. <laughs> I thought you were going to go into the last dance then because that you know he's in Steve Kerr's in that and he talks a bit about some of this stuff and but we've gone Space Jam that that is not where I was expecting it but yeah it's a call it you Sammy Sam you can link that into the uh, podcast Phil <laughs> just, as a, just as a preview for the last dance Steve Kerr does actually punch Michael Jordan next week I don't want to spoil anything for you <laughs> If there's reason to watch it already, then that's it. There you go. Obviously, I think there's um, some really good bits in there. And some of the stuff you mentioned, obviously, he's gone into the, the Golden State Warriors and they had a decent roster already. He's not had to kind of bring a lot of talent. And it, it sort of links a little bit to, um, I think it was John Buchanan, was the Australian cricket coach. And he came in, he had like Glenn McGrath, Shane Warne, Ricky Ponting, all these kind of stellar stu- superstars. And... He has to challenge them differently. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious as to what you took away personally from your previous journey into all reds now that you kind of, I know this will work, but these are some things I've got to be mindful of in a new environment, what they might be. Yeah, I think like for me, coming in, I'm coming into an environment where they, uh, the club's just been relegated for National 2. So they've been up there for four years, I think. Actually, there's some players within that setup that have played higher. For me, the kind of the biggest, the biggest thing is that I need to come in and, and kind of co-orientate with them. Actually, there's some people in there that have got far more experience at a higher level than I have. Okay, and actually, I think going in and, and showing a respect for that, I'm not going in to make wholesale changes, I'm going in to try and get better from them. So I think harnessing what, they, what they've done and what they know is going to be really, really important in that part of the journey, especially if we're creating a, you know, a new culture. Yeah, cool. So I think he, um, one of the things he said is he's challenged them to play a test cricket at 400 and over because it had never been done and, and yeah. challenged them off the pitch that he wanted to make them better people. And I guess through some of the stuff uh, that Steve Kerr's done, he'd be similar yeah. with that. And um, yeah, it's always difficult going to a new environment because you get the, uh, the naysayers, oh, we don't do it like that around here. And um, so having a fairly robust mental model about how you see the game being played and leaning on those players' experiences, I think, would be pretty key. So coming to you, what uh, what did you look at this week? Uh, before I go into what I looked at, what I am going to talk about really supports what Coxie was um, talking about and uh, stuff he's mentioned about X and O's and 
how you're going to coach that really hits with some of the stuff I'm going to mention. I also want to say that uh, whatever I talk about, these are my views, none of my employers. I've got to get that in. Um, ah, we're not the BBC, mate. It's fine. Uh, you know the crap, mate. You know the crap. <laughs> um, also, uh, listening to last week's podcast, it reinforces what Richie was talking about around uh, uh, developing the person and that connection. I know we talked about uh, four C's and, that came out strong. So if you haven't listened to last week's podcast, definitely do that. There you go. There's a plug for you, Phil. You're um, pro, mate. You're so, <laughs> and you're linking it to Coxies. It's almost like this is planned, but let's not tell anyone that. Cause... It's almost planned on the hoof. Um, the, uh, what I'm going to talk about is, uh, is one of my favourite podcasts, uh, um, apart from yours, Phil. Uh, Will Greenwood's podcast on the uh, 20th of April, and he's episode 40, and it's uh, Razor, the best a pod can get. Now, when you hear that, you probably do think of Scott Razor Robinson. And I didn't go to this because he's, he's a Kiwi. Um, I do like the Kiwis. He's probably my um, second favourite place behind, uh, behind England. But it's more how he comes across and what he talked about really, really resonated with me. Uh, Will Green was <laughs> very good with him as well. Obviously, they coached the Barbarians together. But um, what I, why, why I really wanted to choose this one was because... There's a lot of people listening to a lot of stuff. There's a lot of webinars, a lot of information out there. And I really hope this can kind of pull it together because when eventually we do get back in front of players, it's all about getting the stuff in your head across to them and how they learn and how they take it on board. And he put things very, very simply. Now, being an ex-front rower, I like it simple. And many rugby players like it simple. So he put things very simply. Um, and that's what I really liked. Uh, so a bit of background on Scott. Um, very successful Crusaders coach. But um, before he did that, uh, he got 23 caps for the All Blacks. Uh, I know, Phil, your views on pros becoming coaches. And we'll discuss that in a second um, because what he did. But then he, had, um, he coached at school coached in club level he coached mpc assistant coach in new zealand 20s um and what he also did <clears throat> was he recognized right um he's still got a lot to learn um he'd been coached by some amazing people gordon titchens robbie deans wayne smith steve hansen to name but a few um and he was really passionate about coaching walking around with his uh, playbook and he mentioned uh, coxie's x's x's and o's and working out moves that would, would work for, for him and his team. But he was dyslexic, um, quite severely dyslexic. And uh, pic- he, he preferred working with pictures. A lot of words didn't work for him. He, he got him curious about um, how people learn. So he went to university and got his degree. Um, and he met his wife there. Uh, and he learned how to deliver messages with more impact for teaching and learning. Uh, which is a big thing for me because you get you get a lot of players who then go into coaching and don't study how people learn and how to create an environment where people learn. And obviously, uh, if you've seen any pictures of um, Scott Robinson breakdancing and surfing, he's a, he, he does paddleboarding as well, so he's gone up in the estimations there because I love a bit of paddleboarding. Um, he's a big character and he's got a lot of passion. Also, he recognises that he's only part of a team. His strength is getting things started. And he surrounds himself with other people that will finish it. So a couple of things that should help people when they go into their environments. Uh, with what Scott mentioned was around, he had, um, he had a clear vision. He could describe where the team were going. He had a clear mission, which is how they're going to get there. So I know you mentioned it, Cox, as well, as well about a vision and mission, but it's really clear. And he got everybody to buy into that as well, everybody to buy into it. And one of the other things that really hit home with me was all the stuff he did was uh, on fields or maps and nothing was more than three words. Now, for a front rower, that's happy days. Three could be too many. But actually, nothing was more than three words. So in my head, I got thinking around, oh, tackle technique like uh, eyes to thighs ring of steel drive for five cheek to cheek 
those kind of things, nothing more than three words, because one word can mean a lot to different, a lot of things to different people. And that's what you put across. Uh, that really hard with me. I, I, I really like that. And he also talked about in their kind of environment, having that common vocabulary and common language. And some of you may have heard uh, or read up on the, the themes that the Crusaders do. So they've had a lot of themes in the past. And I think their theme currently, you can listen to the podcast is Kings and talking about what the Kings do there while they reign for a long period of time. And what's, what's King's currency? It's gold. So what's gold standard? And they talk about them, what's gold standard? And it actually, especially with, with young, young men, it actually resonates a little bit more with them and they take it on board a, a bit more. And uh, Will Greenwood talks about his experience with, um, with England uh, and Clive Woodward as well. And listen to the podcast, you will go into it in a lot more uh, detail. And it'll hit a lot better than me talking about it now. Talks a lot about mindset as well. One of the biggest things he got the lads to do was connect and celebrate other people's successes, not just on the pitch, but off the pitch. So, the lads were celebrating each other having babies, going to each other's weddings, celebrating graduations. And that really pulls people together because when your back's up against it, you really need that emotion and that want to kind of really pull together um, and get with your mate and help your mates out because rugby is a freaking tough game. He did say being an expert is really key because that gives you respect and also gives you trust. Now, I think that's different for different people because you can be an expert in a certain area, but knowing your strength and what your strength is, knowing your areas of weakness is probably key. So being aware of what you're an expert in is, is massive. That's my uh, summations, Phil. Cool, mate. Love that stuff. Um, I did listen to a little bit of the podcast as well. I know he mentions, just picking up on your the point around understanding learning, really, mm. and, and how, we can, how we can help our athletes with that. And I know that Robertson talks about actually that was one of his interests and something that he needed to work on. So he went and done a degree in me and yeah. he, his interests were around leadership and, and teaching. And I think, well, here's my question, the million dollar question. <laughs> if you have an unlimited budget, because I think there is a problem with actually this links back to what, what I was saying about we're very much focused in, in education around the what and actually probably not focused enough around the how and the why. So if you had an unlimited budget, how would you implement that into some coach education? An unlimited budget, I would probably train uh, as many mentors as I could and then deploy them one-to-one out in the field because I, I, I strongly believe that um, one-to-one mentors have probably the biggest impact over a longer period of time than conferences or coaching qualifications or CPDs because they can connect to that individual and understand that individual as a person, understand what motivates them, what goals they've got and then support them incrementally over a period of time to get there. Cool, mate. Sounds, sounds good. I'm gonna send you send you my finished master's piece when this finishes because that is. Uh, oh, is that? Yeah, that's along the last same lines, and you just kind of nailed oh. the, nailed it on the head, really. Well, small minds seldom differ. What can I say? <laughs> Hold on, Dan. Are you just trying to say that Hubs within about four sentences has summed up what you've taken twenty thousand words to do? Because that is that's too good a compliment for Hubs, mate. You've got to take that back. Yeah. No, um, yeah, no, he actually did. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, be, <laughs> I'll be Dr. Hubs from now on in. <laughs> <laughs> right, swiftly, swiftly moving on. Uh, Dicko, we're coming to you. Nice. So one of the things that really stood out then from Hubs was, I think said the phrase, one word can mean many different things to many different people. And there's probably no other word that <laughs> divides opinion than that of talent, and um, the, the webinar I dived into, it was last week. I mean, this week I've been fairly under the pump doing some, some of the bits and pieces. So it's, uh, it's a week old now, but it was Professor Kev Till from Leeds Beckett University um, delivered a session entitled Talent Identification and Development Systems, Friend or Foe, which was uh, kind of intriguing. So a bit of background, um, 
I've known Kev for a number of years now, um, before he was a professor, before he became Mr. Big Dog on campus. And he's always had a background uh, within sort of rugby. Rugby league was his, his pastime. Uh, he's worked in the practice as a strength and conditioning coach at a Super League club. He's worked really hard on their talent development programme in RFL and as part of the Carnegie Adolescent Rugby Research Programme. He's, he's now deploying people across both codes. Um, he's been a great source of, of help to me, so I guess it was a few of my biases, just, just listening to stuff he's done before. But what I really liked about it was it was around 25 minutes long. It kind of posed a couple of questions with his thoughts, and then it was opened up to the wider audience to ask, ask some questions. So I'll, I'll kind of run through what he spoke about, what he kind of provoked, and then some of the questions that came up um, which may fuel the fire for you guys to, to dive in. So he essentially he spoke about what is talent and, and how that can mean so many different things. And he spoke about it on a, a macro level around like a governing body. They'll have idea on what talent might be in their domain. Um, he broke it down to the, the kind of meso, meso level, whichever way you say it, that being a kind of individual club or, or school. And then right down to the bottom end, talent means different things to different coaches. It means different things to, to scouts. Um, I started reading, I forgot the name of the book. Um, it obviously happened because I instead it, but I started reading a book. Um, and they were talking about sort of how Moneyball came around and it put an objective slant on something that was fairly subjective. So a coach over, or a scout over many years would have a, a really defined idea about what talent might be in baseball. And they kind of removed that subjectivity and, and put the numbers on in, in the, the book and the film. Um, so he spoke about, around that for a while, but the key bit was we're identifying talent now and trying to benchmark where that will be as future potential. So you've already got, with any talent system, that is a massive issue, that you might have somebody who, in the here and now, is, is absolutely outstanding, but they've actually reached their future potential at the age of 17, 18. And then we're trying to say that they're going to transition across into adult sports, which is why... I guess linked to, to what Dan was speaking about, American sports, that's where the draft system inherently fails a lot of the time. Like if the first round draft pick hardly ever goes on to absolutely smash it out of the park. It's the guys that are down, way down the rankings that, that haven't reached their future potential who then get the chance. So it's just, it was linked to that. There were some, some interesting pieces. Um, having a real understanding of, of what is the outcome for the talent development programme. Um, and I think in, in rugby, in, in a lot of senses, it's around getting as many people involved for as long as possible and retaining them into, into the adult game. That's certainly around, in rugby, the developing player programme. Yes, we need to identify the, the future stars of the game, but we still have a, an onus to try and develop players to, to love rugby and move into adult rugby. And we know that's a, a massive issue. He then went on to, uh, to speak around how we can make better decisions. So the, the technical, tactical stuff is, is what we do day in, day out. But particularly within a, an adolescent talent development system, you've got all kinds of things, biological issues, psychosocial issues. Um, and he came up with some, some stuff around there. And then the bit that I think we all struggle with was how do we build scaffolding for the guys who at some point may exit? But we know through loads and loads of research that that could be the, the roadblock or the trauma, as other people have referred it to, um, that then leapfrogs them in and if we don't have that scaffolding or the safety nets to catch them we could then lose them to the sport um and in a nutshell he came up with the fact that talent development systems are inherently good or bad but the way they're managed and delivered can have a massive impact on things um so that was kind of where he got to is a real brief and I'll, I'll definitely share the slides and the youtube video for for guys to dive into um, but then one of the very first questions, quite rightly, was if you're looking at something that's it's multifactorial, as a, a, the game of rugby is, it's multifactorial. Um, a lot of the stuff's emergent, and we know it's a late specialisation sport. And within that, an individual plays a part of a team. Is It's kind of how, how can we design the very best system? Um, and that came on to some of the stuff around resources. I was interested in that, that question, Coxie, uh, to Hubs before about if you had unlimited resource, what would you do? 
Um, and I guess from my, my world of coach development, I would want every environment delivering excellence. You know, so we wouldn't need DPP or we wouldn't necessarily need academy groups. We'd have, so in Yorkshire, any age group is around 1,500 kids playing the game. So 1,500 kids getting excellent stuff every time. That's the way forward. Not selecting the top 10% because somebody decides that's a, an appropriate figure for a system. Um, how we would go about that, and I'm definitely leaning towards the mentor stuff with hubs. Um, it's, it's intensive, but it definitely yields the best results. Just that in my world, trying to get somebody to come and sit down and partake in a, in a workshop around stuff, it's never on the right night. It's never in the right location. Going online is, is a, a way of doing it, but I do feel um, you do lose that. Um, linking back to Kirk Vallis, he talked about casual collisions on, on that podcast. And that for me is the gold dust when you just bump into somebody, you have a little bit of a, a conversation at a workshop and then they go away massively impacted. So it's, it's difficult to try and balance things. Um, and then somebody spoke around the relative age effect and, and how little research there is in in methods to alleviate that. So everybody knows it's an issue. Everybody knows it kind of evens itself out into adulthood. Um, and if you're fortunate enough to be picked up as a, a quarter four birthday and make it through to the big league, then you're going to be uh, the absolute hero because you're in the minority all the way through and, and so on. Um, but it, it then leaked to how do we educate people? So a lot of people will have heard the term relative age effects. But do, do as many people know around training age or biological age or those different kind of ages, like how long have they done the sport? What other experience can they bring? So what other sports do they play? This whole idea of generalists versus specialists. Um, and how far can we go with that training? I'm conscious that sometimes we over, well, we, we scare people away by making it sound over academic when it doesn't really need to be. I mean, anybody who knows anything would understand the kid picking up the game of rugby at 14 will have limitations compared to the kid who started at six in terms of knowledge of the game, but they'll also have those other bits and pieces they can bring to the sport that, you know, they don't have this historic, we've always done it that way around here. They just see the game completely differently. Um, then there was a question around mineral resource. So rather than having the maximum resource, as you alluded to, is what would you do if you had very you know, little resource? Um, and interesting that Hubbard's mentioned putting into mentoring Kev mentioned you should put it into coach education so it's interesting that if you've got all the resource in the world or very little resource you need to educate the people involved in it so, so and I guess we're somewhere in the middle lots of talent development systems would be and I, it's how we maximise those education opportunities I would be um, keen on looking at and doing some stuff I'm working on my, my sort of plan as and when we can, can get through this and, and what that might look like, what I might do differently. And one of the key things I've come to my own coaching or certainly around our programme is a lot of it's principles-based. And um, I bastardised the saying, I can't remember who said it, but I got it from a, a PT uh, around methods are many and principles are few. Methods will always change, but the principles never do. So regardless if you're coaching the kids, at a club on a Sunday morning, nine, ten-year-old kids, the principles of rugby essentially the same as that of the adult game. Um, and if you're just out there looking for the next golden ticket, you know, what's the best rook drill to make sure we win this game this weekend, then we're probably letting our, our players down. Um, so that was kind of it. The other, the other bit I was intrigued in, and it's more of a question to the group, somebody asked what role competition plays and is there anything around that being linked to future success? Um, my own gut feeling and my own biases are that uh, we place too much emphasis on competition too early. But is there anything out there? And, and I'll throw it open to the floor. Is there anything around competition does drive people towards success? Sorry, I'll finish, Phil. Sorry, Phil. Good, good stuff, mate. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just thinking how many people now want to burn you for being your witchcraft and suggesting that competition maybe isn't the best thing for, uh, you know, or the only thing that we should be promoting for kids. So, I, I never said that. I was asking the question. <laughs> how That's much what you meant. The competition or playing opportunities. Ooh. Here we go. So this is the thing. I, I'm yet to see a kid who isn't competitive regardless yeah. of the playing opportunity. Yeah. But as soon as you label that playing opportunity as a competition, it's not the kids who change, is it? We all know that. 
So, hundred <laughs> percent. Burn him! Burn him! Mate, so many questions because you really took a lot of my biases with this. <laughs> I could be here for a lot longer than forty minutes, Phil. Okay, another beer. i'm going to answer your question with a question excellent so do is the system um misconstrued by the fact we have a pathway with a professional outcome at the end of it so we talk about a player development program if you looked at that as a snapshot at any one point that is going to be the organization developing those players within that program to the best of their ability and hopefully giving them a really great opportunity to just get better is the issue which if and if you just did that 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 would just for me would be really really good practice my thought probably is now shifted towards because everyone likes a pathway and everyone likes a pathway diagram and everyone wants to know what the end goal is because we have that and we pitch professional rugby at the end of it does that actually misconstrue the whole thing so we're then going well how do we get them to become professional rather than let's just keep working with them in the brackets they're in until we get to a point where we recognize that they're good enough or they're not. And I, I just think mis-selling, and I do think there are a lot of examples of people being mis-sold a dream or come into our program. You're going to be a professional rugby player. Yeah. Well, no one's saying that 99.8% of you aren't going to be professional rugby players. We're still getting you through the door. And I wonder if, if we just, Rechange, you know, refocused or reframed the conversation and took away the professional bit at the end of it and just said, all we're going to do is just make you as good as you possibly can be. So when this program finishes, you'll go on and do hopefully some really good stuff. Yeah. And, and listen, I know Hubs can, can definitely answer on behalf of the, the RFU in terms of how that's sort of been reframed because I definitely agree <laughs> that every, everything in the past has always pointed to the top of the pyramid. Yeah. So you feed in down here, and if you work really hard, and um, maybe I don't know, see your family pet get horrifically injured, that'll give you some trauma, so you can fight through that. And um, if you don't <laughs> win the under fifteen national cup, that again can support you. So yeah, I think I think always having the top of the pyramid gives the wrong impression. I mean, just in the DPP, mums and dads refer to their kids as being in the academy, and they're not. Yeah. An England rugby developing player program. And I know that the guys are kind of wanting to move away from that because as soon as you, you put that connotation in there, they assume they are part of some kind of elite yeah. professional rugby. Which at thirteen, and this is one of the key things was, you know, when when should we start this stuff? You know, I get that in the, in the Premier League, there's there's a massive amount of FOMO, and if you miss that seven eight year old who does become a thirty million pound player, you're going to get fired. But you know, in, in rugby, crikey, the, the differences over an 18-month period from 14 to 15 to 16, you know, that's... So I think we would probably, if we all had our way, would slide it back a year and certainly not engage until under-15s. Um, you're then a little bit closer to, to kind of physical maturation. You can kind of start to see where people are in terms of position and you can definitely see uh, whether or not they're, they're going to have potential what it takes to push on to the very top levels. But... If we don't do it, other sports are doing it, and there's always that risk. You know, it's not a race to the bottom. So there's there's always I, I get why people would want to start earlier, but it's for, probably from a lack of education rather than than that. I know that doesn't answer your question, but they're just my no, 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 no. It's a, it's a really good point. I'm just wondering with with the unique situation of Yorkshire now, with having no top of the pyramid effectively, other than going to other people's you know, drifting into other people's pyramids is, and, and this certainly isn't suggesting that you, you would ever miss sell the dream, but I, I, you are now effectively the only rugby academy in the country with no professional outlet. I wonder if that is a really unique opportunity. Can you be really unique? It's just unique. A unique opportunity to just focus on that. To, to say it, it doesn't matter where you end up because unless leads go, you know, find a load of money and go back up, we're not going to be, we're not trying to find you necessarily for their first team. We are just going to develop you for the sake of development. Yeah, I mean, that is, um, I would say it's tremendously unique 
off. <laughs> uh, it is it's great because regardless of what environment you're in, there is always a slant towards what that current first team wants and needs. Um, and we know that coaching's a fairly short-lived pastime. So what that current coach wants now, and you're delivering that to 16-year-olds, that coach realistically is not going to be there when they're 19, 20 and, and crossing the first team. Um, but we will have issues because we will only be under 18. And, and the biggest thing we found, it links all the way back to this connection piece, that when they cross into the senior academy and you're seeing them three, four days a week, that's when you're building connections. That's when you're starting to get to know who you are coaching, which is key. Um, when you're seeing them for an hour a week or maybe two hours a week prior to Academy League, you don't really get to know the who. Um, now, the head coach might do because he'll spend a lot more time in schools than you do. But if I've just dropped into a session and I'm coaching 16 backs and I might have known them for two hours, I don't get to know the who. And then if somebody rings me up and says, you know, Dicko, we've got this kid coming up to university in our area, would you take a punt on him? It's, it's a big call to make because I've, I've known that kid for three, four, five hours and I've seen him play a few Academy League games. Um, so that, that is one of the potential issues. There's so many more opportunities, I do believe, because we can take our time, we can develop kids properly and we can put some of the off-field education into them that supports them into the wider world. But not having that 18 to 20 real kind of condensed development piece could, could potentially cause us issues. But. I just want to pick up on your uh, your point before I, I've got about four questions, but another point around <laughs> first team would dictate what happens in the academy. I think that's um, a big one around the academy selling what people, I say what people and athletes need in order to survive in a first team environment. It's probably not the, the tech tech knowledge, probably more the biopsychosocial stuff uh, and being able to lay that in over, over time and, um, and then putting that into what, Kevin Till talks about um, with with his skill set, but the big question for you is, and links a little bit to that, is how would you identify potential? And I will go back to a couple of things you mentioned earlier: is around um, relative age effect, training, playing age, generalist, specialist, and the knowledge of person. What would you do specifically to identify potential in a 13, 14 year old? Yeah, good question. Um, and I, I will definitely answer it. I'll try to take as long as you did to uh, ask the question and do some deflecting around that. I'll <laughs> first bit about excellent coaching. And it's, it's kind of, it's not a bugbear, it's just the way the game is. But in rugby, and I guess in a lot of sports, we have this real kind of lemmings approach to coaching. You get kind of chucked in at the deep ends. If you happen to be there on registration day under sevens, you will become the head coach. And that's your lot in life. Um, but then thankfully you get to 16, 17, 18 and if you're lucky there's a, there's a Colts coach there and you can just hand it over, job done, get back to being behind the bar. But then what happens to all that accrued knowledge? Like where are the people going back into the 12, 13 year olds? If you don't have a younger brother playing, that kind of vast amount of knowledge is lost. So that, that'd be for me, if we're going to instill excellent coaching every time, we need to get, and I say the word expert, but the guys who have lived it for six, seven, eight years to go back in and support the guys going through it the first time. So you know yourself, a DPP, whatever age you open it, 13, 14, 15, doesn't matter. That first introduction or that first assessment day, you're going to get swamped. You will get swamped with nominations because the people nominating don't know any different. They just see what they see in front of them every week. They've got nothing to compare it to bygone eras. They've got nothing to kind of, this is what a good 16, 17-year-old looks like. I've just got a feeling that I have... 12 DPP players because we've won every game for the last two years. So that's, that's one thing. So that's a bit around excellent coaching, how we, how we can spot that. What I, what I would do is I would make that process, not, I don't want to say difficult, but the coaches who are nominating are the ones who know the who. So if we can get a little bit more stuff, how long has this child been playing rugby? What other sports do they do? How... Um, you know, are his parents, or just trying to build a bigger picture, not make it insurmountable so they don't want to do it. But if you have to know a little bit more about a player, I think you're less likely to fire off 12 nominations than you would be these three or four. I, I love coaching this kid. He asks some really good questions. He's always trying. He'll always turn up. This, that, that. We all know the kind of high attitude, uh, high performance, low attitude type player. 
they can do it all because they play for a long time. They probably go to a nice school. They get five, six hours a week of coaching compared to the kid who gets maybe one. Um, and they're kind of easy to spot. But are they the ones with current performance and lack of potential? So I think something around, I would definitely make the nomination process a bit more rigorous. So we, we start to identify the who. Um, and then on the days, we, I think we do, we've, we've kind of gone down this, um, this games approach quite rightly. We want to see the kids playing games and different constraints on the game allow us to see different things. I, I get all that. But some kind of objective measurements, I think, are going to support us. So that kid who currently is playing second row at 14 is actually an inch taller than his parents already. So realistically, is five foot ten is he going to be six foot six to play the game you know so that's and you start having those conversations then and again it's listen it's massive kind of worms there's no easy answers but i think we need to start to layer this this education on and certainly one thing we've done this year at dpp is prior to each session is just do a little bit of a um there was a, a podcast and it was quick and dirty tips it was like a 10 minute kind of thing so we're trying to just give a kind of a quick and dirty tips around relative age effects. You might have noticed your son all of a sudden drops everything, walks into the door, can't go to four inches in three months. So we know he's going through a spurt and we're going to take that into account and just because he literally the ball hits him in the face before he flaps his hands, we, we kind of understand that's part of the process. But there's not many coaches would nominate that player because current performance, like mate, he can't even catch a cold. So, so trying to do little bits and pieces, and uh, I guess this this sort of lockdown period has, has definitely fanned the flames of that. That people can access it. There's absolutely no excuses now why they can't just drop in if there's somewhere for them to go and get ten minutes of. This is what training age means. This is what peak height velocity. Let's get all academic. This is what that actually means. Can, can we just be conscious of talking about growth spurts and hubs because that's a sore subject and we all know that. So. I'm waiting for mine, Phil. <laughs> keep waiting mate keep waiting <laughs> Coxie any questions any thoughts on uh, what Dicko's talked about more of, a, more of a statement really I suppose I'm a, I'm a, I've been a big believer for quite a long time that we cut too many too soon at 18 and actually I, I'd like to see I, I wonder what our successes would be like around the country if we had more in longer I know resource is an issue and I'm you know luckily I don't manage an academy so I don't have to worry about that but in my ideal world, you know, we, we've got more for longer. We, we make club coaching stronger. Um, and, and for me, I'm a little bit worried about after this pandemic with clubs with less, more, less money, are we going to be trying to pull young players through quicker um, that could potentially be maybe damaging? Um, which probably puts more strain on the pathways, doesn't it? I get that. I know... All the way through when, when us three kind of worked together, guys, we were definitely looking at that transition piece from Colts into senior rugby and how it's easy to take the best 18-year-old to plug a gap in the second team that week, but then the knock-on effect to his Colts team who can't play on the Sunday then because you know, they don't have their, their superstar. Um, there's a massive piece around kids who leave secondary school, go to university, and then they're back in the bottom feeders again. They've been the superstar first-team player at school for a couple of years, and then... They can't even get a game in the fourth on a Wednesday afternoon. You know, I, I definitely agree. We need to keep these kids engaged for longer. I definitely don't have the answers, by the way. Um, I can't see. I can't see the academy landscape changing where we would have a DPP for 18s to 20s. As as kind of good as that sounds, the, the resources out there. Um, I think it definitely comes back to like Hub says. How can we support and educate those guys? Because um, Colts rugby. We all played it. We probably all enjoyed it, but we're now dealing with with diff, fully different beasts. You know, we probably uh, we probably went out had a few beers on a Saturday night. At eighteen, obviously, would never sanction underage drinking. Um, but the bar shut at half eleven, so you'd be home and then you'd be playing rugby the next morning. These guys are going out at half eleven and going through till five six in the morning, and then we're saying Colts rugby should still happen at eleven o'clock Sunday morning. So I think there's got to be some big paradigm shift in, in the offer. You know, we've got to understand who, who is playing the game and how can we support them better. 
as always, more questions and answers, but it would definitely be a boring job if, uh, if, if it was the other way around. So, superb. Uh, Jens, we're going to jump straight into uh, ones to watch next week. So, what uh, what have you got your eyes on? What are you thinking about signing up for? Go on, Hubs. What are you looking at? Uh, I am looking at a little piece that um, I think Dicko would be interested in as well. Um, from our old, uh, old mate, Jamie Taylor. Uh, it's it's a bit of research he's doing as part of his PhD because it uh, should shoulda coulda didn't it? why high potential players didn't make it um, and I've been listening to a Dan Abraham's podcast on him and uh, he's just tweeted out um, his research as well so I'm going to look at that over the next week because there's some really interesting stuff based on players that didn't actually make it rather than ones that have, which is quite rare. Love that. Good stuff. Dicko, what are you looking at? Yeah, I've been trying to um, sort of engage with some of the, the, the GAA stuff. Um, initially, obviously, I feel my bias that, that Lanny was going to do a session um, and being a, an adopted Yorkshireman, obviously a Cumbrian. But this week, they've got, um, I was just trying to get his name right, which I'll definitely butcher, but uh, Professor Eamon O'Shea, um, is, is a hurling coach, um, but also just kind of some of the stuff that he, he brings to it. I think it's more of a kind of psychological slam. So I'd be, I'd be interested in that because their kind of, I guess, elite Gaelic games are still what we would class as uh, participation. They're sort of twice a week. You know? so, so what kind of stuff can we learn from them for the, the club game? Coxie? Uh, apart from the last dance, which, which I strongly recommend, <laughs> um, I'm going to go with the uh, I think it's Coach Logic but it's Stu Armstrong um, designer games we got a game for that I think it's the follow up to last week's um, last week's piece with I can't remember his name but that's, that's what I'm going to do Cool Good. Stu Armstrong yeah, our old boss, funny enough, yeah. Um, I've got two, so one that's actually out this week, so it's the Rugby Coach Weekly podcast. Uh, it's Dan Cottrell speaking to Andy Brownhill about mental health and his personal journey. So that's one that I'm going to catch up on because there's been some some really good feedback on Twitter about that. And then cool. definitely looking forward to uh, England Rugby Tuesday night is Simon Amor and knowing yourself as a coach. And for anyone that's worked with Simon or knows Simon well, um, a really, really strong thinker in the game. So, uh, and and yeah, an intriguing title. I think he'll have some really great insight around that. So, yeah, some good ones this week. That'll be uh, that'll be good to see. Right, I'm going to round up the roundup. Uh, so, thank you very much to my three guests. It's been an absolute pleasure. That definitely could have gone on a lot, lot longer. Is there's a ton of stuff to get stuck into there, and maybe we'll find uh, find time not on a Friday night on a bank holiday to uh, to go through some of that the next time. But um, I hope if you're listening, you find it useful. Uh, links to all the content discussed will be shared in the podcast blurb. Please subscribe, like, and share. And as we ride off into the sunset, I'd like to wish you all the best. Stay safe and go well.